With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. This is Lars. Thanks again for checking out my podcast. Enjoy your day and the show, and let's make America great again. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, the results of investigations into the Wuhan Virology Lab. I understand it's been some time, a year or so, uh, since we suspected the Wuhan Virology Lab of possibly creating COVID. Uh, But the problem is the investigations have not been very vigorous. So we have to turn to real investigators like Natalie Winters, lead investigative reporter for the National Pulse. Natalie, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me back. So what have we heard that's new about the Wuhan Institute of Virology and in particular the involvement of Dr. Anthony Fauci? A lot to unpack here. As you you noted, I've been investigating the Wuhan Institute of Virology and its ties, frankly, not just to the Chinese Communist Party, but to the U.S. National Institutes of Health for quite some time now. But the story that we've recently put up at the National Pulse, I think, really shed some light into just how deep and really, I think, how dark um, those ties go. So an individual by the name of James Leduc, um, which is someone, probably not a household name, uh, but he, he runs the Galveston National Laboratory. He's also received dozens of grants totaling millions of dollars um, from Anthony Fauci. Um, so this lab we had exposed a few weeks ago, and frankly a year ago, um, that they had been collaborating on research with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, working with, in their own words, quote, the world's deadliest pathogens, um, something that, in my opinion, should be nowhere near uh, the Chinese Communist Party, but apparently that's not the policy over at the National Institutes of Health. Um, But what we recently learned through another Freedom of Information Act request is that this individual, this Fauci-funded researcher, someone who has used our taxpayer dollars for decades, 
uh, to collaborate with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, he was tipped off by one of his friends or colleagues who actually worked um, in, I believe it was a, a branch of the U.S. Army, um, that some senators, particularly Marco Rubio, uh, were trying to t- potentially probe the Wuhan Institute of Virology in a more, I would say, vigorous manner uh, because the World Health Organization failed us so spectacularly when it came to actually getting to the true origins of COVID-19. And what we saw was that a day after James Leduc was alerted that there was a potential investigation uh, into the Wuhan Institute of Virology, he forwarded this email uh, to individuals, particularly the top bat coronavirus researcher at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And there are a host of other emails that show James Leduc repeatedly informing and, frankly, warning, forewarning um, Wuhan Institute of Virology lab officials and researchers that a potential investigation could be commencing, even um, advising them on certain questions that they should be prepared to answer. So I think really just goes to show you the kind of nexus that exists between a lot of American researchers um, and their Chinese Communist Party counterparts. Have you been able to determine, Natalie, why we were doing this kind of research in concert with China and in China instead of the United States? Is it as simple as simply saying, well, Obama had made the gain-of-function research illegal in the United States, and so they decided to just offshore it, which still doesn't sound legitimate. I mean, if your own country uh, has said it's illegal to do it here, I suppose a private company could say, well, if it's illegal to do it in America, we'll do it somewhere else. But when the same government that made it illegal to do gain-of-function research here because of the dangers and the hazards it posed, when part of that government then says, well, we're doing research, We'll just move it offshore. That doesn't seem legitimate at all, does it? No, it it seems like a very risky and, frankly, just straight up, I mean, dumb policy that if a certain form of research is too risky to be done in the United States, that we should outsource it uh, to our existential threat, which is China. Even other countries like Ukraine, really across the the entire globe, countries whose biosafety precautions are nowhere near on par with, with those of the United States. Um, but I think what, what's interesting, and we don't necessarily know for sure um, that the collaboration between the Galveston National Laboratory and Wuhan had to do with gain-of-function research, but it is certainly curious uh, because the reason that they actually started collaborating in the first place was all the way back in 2017, which was when Wuhan was getting ready to build their biosafety level four, which is where you work with really the deadliest pathogens, as I said before, that's where a lot of the bat coronavirus research is being done. So Galveston National Laboratory, which is, of course, funded by U.S. taxpayers, was brought on to advise the Wuhan Institute of Virology on how to best kind of establish its biosafety level four facility. So it's certainly interesting that it seems that the relationships between American researchers and Chinese researchers have to do with some of the more deadly forms of research, right? The biosafety level four, the gain-of-function type manipulations. And believe it or not, James Leduc um, and even some other individuals, academic types, who've been very, very, very forceful and prominent voices um, in terms of discrediting the lab leak theory, they've attended conferences at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and there was one event. Um, it's since been deleted from the lab's website, um, but it actually documented how the first session that all of these people, these American researchers and people from the Wuhan Institute of Virology talked about, it was gain-of-function research, and that's a direct <laughs> quote. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's really ridiculous. And I think you can kind of find the crime and the cover-up, right? The fact that they're deleting these web pages. Obviously, it wasn't above board what they were doing, or they could be transparent. But the point is that they can't be, because what was going on behind closed doors, behind many layers of closed doors at these you know, BSL-4 facilities, um, was certainly not up to par um, with, I think, what the United States standards, standards should have been. I mean, it's one of those things, Natalie, I think of it in personal terms. I mean, if somebody said, hey, you're going to get audited by the IRS, I'd say, fine, we'll hand over our books. We, we run a square set of books. On the other hand, if I had been involved in things where I was hiding things, you know, from the IRS, uh, I would be afraid of an inquiry by a U.S. senator or by the IRS because I'd say, well, you know, I can't let them see what I've been doing. And it seems as though that's what it always makes me think of that phrase, mens rea, the guilty mind. Uh, the, the, the person who knows they're doing nothing wrong isn't going to be afraid of additional inquiry. The person who knows they're doing something wrong is very afraid of it. That's Natalie Winters, lead investigative reporter for the National Pulse. You've heard me talk about genericcbd.com. They're the ones that sell premium CBD for about half as much as the leading brand. Well, they got a brand new product, and they think you're really going to like it. And to prove it, they want you to try it free of charge. That's right, free. Just pay two ninety five for shipping and handling. It's their muscle joint and skin. CBD cream. And I'll tell you what, this stuff melts right into your muscles and joints, your knees, your elbows, your lower back. You're not going to believe how fast it goes to work, but that's not all. It doubles as one of the most effective skin moisturizers you'll ever try. One drop on your rough, cracked, sun-baked hands, it turns back time right in front of your eyes. It's that good. Don't take my word for it, though. Try it yourself. Get your free sample at genericcbd.com. Once you try it, you'll never want to be without it. Just cover $2.95 for shipping and handling and get a free sample headed your way. See what this amazing CBD cream can do for you. Get your free sample at genericcbd.com. That's genericcbd.com, your number one source for generic CBD, genericcbd.com. These products and statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. They're not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease or illness. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And by the way, naysayers go to the head of the line at that number. Uh, we've done that for 25 years. We're going to keep right on doing it. When somebody disagrees with my point of view or perhaps the point of view of somebody who's a guest on the show, you are free to disagree. But you better come armed with some facts and some logic and a good sense of answering some questions as well. So call the number if you like. If you want to uh, send me an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you'll find that two places at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and LarsLarson.com, our website, which doesn't have nearly as much censorship on it as zero uh, as the folks over at Twitter do. When voters two years ago said, okay, we will decriminalize drugs, except it did more than that, Measure 110 effectively legalized hard drugs, fentanyl, mer uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, LSD, and all the rest. But they said, well, but we're going to spend a quarter of a billion tax dollars and we're going to provide mental health care and addiction services to these people. That has failed so miserably. And I thought we'd talk about it with my friend, the former district attorney, Josh Marquis. Josh, welcome back to the program. And what I really hate is the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper, OregonLive.com. They describe this as a pioneering idea, uh, a pioneering program. 
And I, I thought, what's pioneering about saying we're going to legalize hard drugs effectively and then we're going to offer treatment and none of the addicts, for the most part, is going to take any of the treatment? What's pioneering about that? Do you know? Well, there's nothing pioneering about it. And I'll give the Ben Bulletin, which is you know now owned by the Taylor Astorian Company, uh, credit for basically calling it as a fraud, which is what it was when it started. Essentially, we had out-of-state billionaires, and, and people throw George Soros' name around, but this was Soros' group. His story, it's called Drug Policy Alliance. It's based in the East Coast in D.C., and they were looking for a state just big enough to make an impression, but not too big that it would you know, draw too much attention. And so they dumped maybe five, six million dollars into the Oregon this ballot measure in twenty twenty. Effectively there was no organized opposition. I was I was opposed to it. Some police chiefs and sheriffs, some people in the addiction community were opposed because they knew what a disaster it was, but it flew through. It got sixty two, sixty three percent of the vote. Why? Because it lied to people. It said, Hey, we're you know, people shouldn't go to prison for mere possession. I would agree. People have not been going to prison for mere possession of drugs in Oregon for over 30 years. Um, but what it did is it took, it, it functionally, as you said, um, legalized drugs. Now, technically, for example, fentanyl is not the one of the drugs legalized, but that's not how fentanyl presents. Fentanyl, which is a real bane on, on, on our community now, presents as phony oxycodone usually shows up as a gray blue tablet that if you looked it up in a, you know online or in a guide it would say it's 30 milligrams of oxycodone but it's not it's fentanyl and it's it's widely made so it's important to understand that that we weren't putting people in prison for mere possession nor should we i think uh, but now as a result of this measure there is literally no local drug enforcement when i say local I don't just mean the cities and the counties, I mean the state police. The only drug enforcement there is in Oregon now is done by the feds and really on fairly large scale, you know, million dollar plus operations. And the other promise they made was, well, first we're going to, you know, take away these terrible, uh, you know, consequences, you know, that you might actually not be allowed to, say, be a commercial truck driver or an airplane pilot or a police officer if you were convicted of multiple possession of cocaine and, say, methamphetamine. Which sounds sensible to me. Yeah. Sounds very sensible. It was sensible. And and, and it was not used, I believe, unfairly. Um, I mean, the, the percentage of people in prison for drugs alone in Oregon was in, a, in the single digit of percent. A lot of people, if you ask them and say, how many people, how many people, in, uh, those in prison are there for drugs? People would say, oh, 30, 40 percent. No, the, the answer is less than 5 percent. The other part that is now drawing attention is the fact that they promised that this would be painless financially and that they would just use sort of, you know, chump change that they got from taxing marijuana when the mood struck them. And they and so the idea was, well, we're not going to ask you for any more money or taxes. So what they did is they took a, a couple hundred million dollars that had been going from what little taxation there is of marijuana and had been going to counties, which do most of the heavy lifting on addiction and addiction services and take it away from them and now give it to somebody. They really don't know what they're going to do. They have no organized plan. Oregon is consistently rated by organizations that do not have a political game as the worst state in the country for addiction services 
and one of the worst for uh, overdoses and addiction, specifically to drugs like methamphetamine, fentanyl, and heroin. Well, I mean, for it, example, for example, Epic Times cites the fact that one county, I suspect it's Multnomah, has seen overdoses jump by 700% as a result of this sure. new policy. Now, it's passed by the voters. I have respect for the voters, but when the voters screw up, or are led, you know, led down the garden sure. path and yeah. lied to, then then you've got to say, let's fix it. And yet I don't hear anybody in the official ranks, you know, no legislators. Tina Kotek, former House Speaker, could say, we need to call a special session right now and reverse this uh, because, because we're killing people. Uh, overdose deaths are going up dramatically. They are. And one of the reasons, I think, is that the people they're killing just aren't that important to them. Um, generally, I mean, upper middle class addicts and most of us, you know, who are middle class know someone who has a substance abuse problem. And we probably know someone whose family did anything they could to get them into treatment, sometimes effective treatment, often ineffective treatment. But they would, you know, mortgage the house. The problem is if you have working class or lower incomes people, they don't have the resources. I mean, if you have a program that costs twenty to 30000 a month, which is not unusual for an inpatient program, that's just not within the wherewithal. Well, and not, not only that, Josh, but let's say you had uh, the, the lower middle class family, but they win the lottery or they got a Dutch uncle, and he says, I'll pay for the whole thing as long as it takes fix Johnny up. And, and they go to Johnny and say, well, why don't you go into treatment? And Johnny says, I have no interest in going into treatment. I like being high. Right. And, and there's no down consequences for it. You're not going to lose your driver's license. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to you know, be barred from your job as a, a hairstylist slash lawyer slash police officer slash truck driver. Um, there's just going to be no negative consequences. And I'm not a parent. But I, I know enough to know that if, if in a relationship with people who make really bad choices and have really no sense of, uh, of you know, self-worth or, or, or are not motivated, there's, there's going to be almost no reason why most addicts, other than if they realize that they are on a, on a you know, slow road to hell, um, and some do that, but not very many. And, and no, not very many at all. That's Josh Marquis, the former DA. We're talking about the gigantic dump, uh, drop, sorry, increase in uh, drug addiction, overdose deaths, and the fact that nobody is doing anything about it. So I guess let the deaths continue and let the money be wasted. You've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. As you may know, there is a story that we have followed for literally years. It involves a couple, a married couple, who had very deeply held religious beliefs. They owned a little bakery. The bakery was destroyed by the government and the government's actions against them. And what did they do wrong? They had a lot of customers, including customers, by the way, because it's relevant, who were gay. Uh, but what happened when... One of their customers walked in and said, will you make a cake for a specific kind of celebration? We want to celebrate the wedding of two gay people. And at the time, I think it's, it's important to mention, at the time, in the state they were in, Oregon, uh, such weddings were illegal. They were not authorized or sanctioned by the government. So they said, no, we, we don't choose to make a special cake for a gay wedding. That would violate our personally held uh, religious beliefs. It'd be like walking into a Jewish deli and saying, can you make me a ham sandwich? And they'd say, no. And can you put cheese on it? Let's mix dairy and meat together. No, we're not going to do that either. 
closely held religious beliefs. Well, that case, believe it or not, is on its way to the Supreme Court. And I thought we'd talk about it with Stephanie Taub, who's an attorney with the First Liberty Institute, which goes to bat in cases like this. Stephanie, thank you very much for coming back on. Thank you so much for having me on the on the show. So tell me about this. There is a new filing in this case, and, and they have a fancy legal name for it, Amicus Curie, friend of the court br- a brief. Who's filed a brief on behalf of Aaron and Melissa Klein? So we represent them. We are First Liberty Institute. We do. Uh, we are a nationwide nonprofit law firm that's focused exclusively on defending religious liberty for all Americans. And so we've rep- been representing the clients on appeal. And this case has gone on for it's been almost ten years now that this situation has gone on. And so the Supreme Court recently decided that they are going to take up a very important case that will address uh, issues very similar to our clients. Um, It's a very important free speech case involving a wedding website designer in Colorado. And they are asking um, for exactly what our clients are asking for, just the right not to be forced to violate your beliefs by these state agencies that are targeting them and requiring them to, to send messages that go against their sincerely held beliefs. Just so people know the name of it, because that's often how you have to look these up. Sweet Cakes by Melissa is the bakery case. And the other one is 303 Creative. That's the website company, right? That's exactly right. So the Supreme Court will hear the 303 Creative case in the fall. And that case, we hope, will have a, will have a, a positive impact on our client's case. So we recently filed a brief supporting the website designer in 303 Creative and arguing how these sorts of state agencies can really go wrong and allowing them to coerce speech, to coerce families like the clients to send messages that they disagree with. So, um, I mean, not only can it have financially devastating consequences like you see in the client's case, they were ordered to pay $135,000 for quoting a Bible verse to uh, to the couple when they were telling them that they could could not do something that violated their sincerely held religious beliefs. And and then that financially devastating uh, um, penalty really... it, the bakery couldn't hold up to that, and they eventually moved out of the state um, the, and to start life over in, the, in a new state. So it, this, our brief is emphasizing just the disastrous real-world consequences that coercing speech can have. Now, I'm talking to Stephanie Taub from First Liberty Institute. I want to ask you a detailed case cause I, or question because I don't know the case of 303 Creative as well. But it strikes me that some of these seem as though they're cases where they are deliberately targeting people, saying we want to go after this issue and we want to force people we already know do not want to comply with this to comply with something and and give up their First Amendment freedoms. Is that the case in 303 Creative? Well, we've seen it the Colorado do this before in the Masterpiece Cake Shop that went to the Supreme Court not too long ago. The, the, the Colorado agency just dismissed three complaints that would have gone the other direction, but decided to go after the Christian baker in Colorado named Jack Phillips. So it's not a hypothetical. This happens. The, the agencies are not enforcing these things in a neutral way. And in the client's case in Oregon, we recently, just a few months ago, got a decision from the Oregon Court of Appeals 
acknowledging that the Oregon state or the Oregon state agency violated the client's constitutional rights. Was they, the, the court said that they, uh, the administrative agency was not neutral in how it handled portions of their case. In other words, that means they were biased against our clients, our clients, um, their religious beliefs. And anyone who's been following the case will know that, but it's our, it's, and it's amazing that the Oregon court actually acknowledged that and was willing to recognize that there was bias here. The problem is that didn't end the case. <laughs> they sent the agency back to the same biased agency to continue this case that has been going on for 10 years, even after finding that they violated the client's First Amendment rights. I mean, Stephanie, I have to admit, I'm a Protestant Christian. I, I My religious beliefs are closely held. Uh, my wife and I sp- study the Bible on a regular basis, and, and, and this is our religion. We have a right to it. And it just strikes me that there are people out there in society who seem to want to wipe religion or any belief that conflicts with their lifestyle or their beliefs. They want to wipe it away. I don't care what other people's beliefs are, but I don't want them to come and sort of ag- assertively say, I'm not going to let you have your beliefs. I'm going to see if I can get the government to take them away. And I'm worried that as these cases come down, depending on how they come down, it will give a license to anybody to basically go out and shop. I've seen this before, and you're probably familiar with it as an attorney, uh, where they'll, they'll have ADA uh, requirements, which are fine. You know, you should accommodate, uh, you know, the customers that you have who are disabled in one way or another uh, and are qualified under the ADA. But there are people who actually go out shopping, f- trying to find circumstances where they can say, we're going to bring an action against you or you can write us a check. And, and that's effective. It's, it's as though we put a bounty on these kind of cases. And I'm worried that this might have the, the prospect of putting a bounty on Christians saying, hunt them down where they are, find a way to, to push up against their, their religious beliefs. And then when they won't accommodate you and give up their beliefs, then you'll take them to court and destroy them as the clients were destroyed or their business was destroyed. Well, we're certainly hopeful that the Supreme Court's opinion in, in the 303 case will really put an end to that sort of possibility. Uh, and really, this is this is something that Americans should be able to come uh, t- come together and agree on. That no artist, no no person in the marketplace, no matter what your uh, your beliefs are, no matter your political persuasion, you shouldn't be forced by the government to send a message that you disagree with. And so, just uh, just as an atheist artist shouldn't be forced to create art for any sort of religious ceremony like a baptism, um, these clients and people like Ms. Smith in the 303 Creative case shouldn't be forced to send messages that they disagree with. No, so I'm, I'm hopeful hoping. that the Supreme Court will decide this case the right way. But they won't take it up till this fall, which means we likely won't hear an answer in this case until June of next year sometime? Uh, it's possible. It could come a little bit before then, but, but that's right, probably spring of next year. Yeah, they tend to wait. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of sitting on pins and needles right now wondering when they're going to drop the raft of cases they usually drop in June. Have you got any special <laughs> insights as to when the court is going to, because you know that, that you know, the case, or not Casey, but the Roe and Casey case is, has already been a bombshell because of the leaks, and they still haven't found the leaker that we know of, and they're going to drop a bunch of cases in the next couple of weeks, aren't they? 
That's right. So June is going to be a very busy month. We'll be watching on Monday, which is the next date that they could release opinions to see what Well, Ms. Taub, I, I regularly get emails from people saying, hey, I've got a case that involves free speech. Who do I turn to? And I, I recommend you go to First Liberty. And I don't really have a connection to your organization other than that I think you do good work on behalf of people's civil rights. That's Stephanie Taub. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I suppose I always disclose if I have a dog in the fight, you know, a bias in a particular thing. I suppose one of these days I might be on Medicare. I'm nowhere near Medicare right now. But uh, when I hear that Medicare's older rules may actually be causing people to end up with strokes, I thought we've got to dig into this and find out what's going on. Bill Stotts is the president of the Mary Hess Foundation. Mr. Stotts, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here, Lars. Thank you so much for having me on the air. This is an incredible opportunity, and it's appreciated. Well, I want you to tell people about this. First of all, the Mary Hess Foundation, what is its cause? Our cause is, um, well, our mission is really to help our our senior citizens, other stroke survivors, with the therapy costs after things like the Medicare 100-day benefit period expire. And I'm very happy that you touched on that because that's exactly what's been happening since the 1960s. This policy precludes, well, excludes treatments after 100 days, and it doesn't matter what the benefits are. And you can get another 100 days after 60 days, but they can't be related to the first event. So if you had a stroke and you get a second 100 days, you can't use therapy for that stroke. And this this process has really allowed people to die needlessly uh, just because they're senior citizens, they're not contributors to the tax base, uh, and uh, it, it's just a senseless policy to have. I actually wrote a bill uh, that Congressman Steve Cohen refused. Well, he had it for 29 months, changing that 100-day benefit period to a sliding scale and and also making doctors visit nonverbal residents and nursing homes once a week instead of every 60 days like their minimal requirements are. And uh, Mr. Cohen had that bill for 29 months. I got emails saying it was presented to the 113th Congress, who they were working with, all this stuff that was going on. And then an end told me it had never been drafted. So, okay, but Bill, you know, tell, me, tell me this. Was yeah. there some logic to putting a 100-day limit on initially? Because I know Congress sometimes, they'll, they'll write things based on science. They'll write it on the law. They'll write it with some kind of logical basis. Was there ever a logical basis to say stroke survivors uh, on Medicare after 100 days, your benefit just expires as though you don't need the benefit anymore? Was was there some logic right. to any of it? Right. And keep in mind, too, this isn't that 100 day benefit period is not limited to stroke survivors. That's any anything that you have. If you're a Medicare patient, you only get 100 days of treatment for that. And the answer to your question is there's some illogic to it, but nothing logical. The only thing I can find is cost. It's a lot cheaper to not treat somebody and let them just wither away and die than it is to try to make them make a recovery. And well, but it's, it, it almost seems okay. bizarre because, because if you're doing this just based on cost, and saying, okay, we're going to give you 100 days of benefits, and then at that point, you're done. So they assume mm-hmm. that you're either uh, a whole lot better than you were at the beginning, or you're dead. Uh, because otherwise, 
giving you benefits for 100 days and then saying, and then they cut off, which I assume puts you in a kind of situation that may be be likely to bring about your demise, uh, seems counterintuitive Mm -hmm. because then why spend the money to give somebody, you know, help for 100 days and then cut it off at a point where they may need it for another short time or maybe even another long time. It doesn't sound like it's hooked to medicine or science at all. It's not. Um, And this is my mother's story. This is why I started the foundation. On her 23rd day, she was transferred to a facility where we thought she was going to be able to get really good medical or, excuse me, physical therapy. On her 100th day, with really just 50 days of therapy, because she spent some time in isolation with an infection, she was actually standing, weight-bearing on both feet with assistance. The neurologists all told us she could make an astonishing recovery, but Medicare didn't care about that. It was the 100 days is over. There's nothing else you can do. And they put her back in her bed, and a year later she was gone. And there was absolutely no justification, no sense in letting somebody get Letting any individual, not just my mother, anybody, get to the point where they're making such a phenomenal recovery and then just throwing your hands up and saying, okay, we're not going to pay anymore. And that's exactly what you pointed out a minute ago is you're just letting them get to that, uh, the 100 days, and then it's just over with. And there's no sense in that. Well, no, because then all the all the resources you've spent in the first 100 days that might have been about to produce an actual result, a positive result for that American, is simply cut off. So, in effect, if you've just terminated them and, and you've, you've perhaps put them on a path to ending up dying of this, then, then you didn't accomplish anything with the 100 days of resources you spent. It sounds like it could be wasteful a couple of different ways. Again, I'm not trying to treat your mom like a widget, you know, but if you say no, no, we're no, going to put this much yeah. work into it, but when we get right there, we might be 10 days or 20 days or 30 days away from real success for this person. Nope, cut it off and, and let the chips fall where yeah. they may is what it sounds like. That's exactly right, and that's why I started this foundation because I want to help. I want this foundation, and this is our purpose, our mission, and our goal. That's William Stotts, the president of the Mary Hess Foundation. Mr. Stotts, I appreciate your time, and we'll make sure that all those connections on our website, so when people want to find out more about it, they can do it very easily. Thank you for the time. Glad to get your phone calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And be sure to tell Alexa, if you trust her, play the Lars Larson Show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. 
You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's always a pleasure to welcome back to the show the Attorney General of the great state of Texas, Mr. Ken Paxson. Ken, how are you doing? You know what? I'm doing well. Things are uh, going well in Texas. Uh, of course, I'm in the middle of a campaign, but that should be over in two weeks, and we'll move on to the fall. You're pretty confident about that one? I feel pretty good about it right now. I think uh, most people in Texas uh, have figured this out. You know, before we get to Title 42, can I ask you about this? It's got to feel like a thankless job to be out there advocating on behalf of people in Texas. And then the State Bar Association, the, the labor union for, for lawyers, is coming after you and one of your top lieutenants simply because you filed a petition to have a review of, of some of the election shenanigans and, and actual crimes that were committed in 2020. What's that feel like? Uh, you know what? It's, they're very liberal. We've been in fights with them before over their liberal policies, trying to stop them from taking dues from our lawyers who don't agree with how they're spending the money. So the reality is we are, we have an investigation of them, too, for, for directing state bar dues to the helping of the illegal immigration in the state. And we're going to find out if they've, they've actually broken the law. You know, Ken, I've never, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I, I don't have a dog in the fight, but I've never understood why we make lawyers belong to these bar associations. If you say, well, you have to have liability insurance. Yeah, I have to have liability insurance to drive a car, to drive my car on the public roads, but they don't make me belong to the car owners union to be able to do that. I don't frankly see the point of the bar association other than as a vehicle for politics. And, and I would love to get rid of the bar associations right now. You know what? I would agree with you fully. Uh, you know, they may have served some purpose in the past, but they're all political now. And they go after, they're targeting not just me, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're targeting other attorney generals who signed on to that case, trying to force them not to do their job. And the reality is the bar is a bunch of bureaucratic lawyers who are mostly liberal who are trying to tell an elected official, hey, we control what you file. We can tell you how to, how to do your job. Let me ask you about another legal issue, and that is, Last week, the White House was asked to condemn the idea of doxing Supreme Court justices. And then over the weekend, we saw that there were there were actual people showing up at the homes of some of the justices, apparently trying to intimidate them into making a different decision than the one that they have purportedly made, although no Supreme Court decision is really made until the court actually announces it. What should we make of, of the idea of, of an America where the mob in the streets decides we can intimidate and maybe cow members of the Supreme Court? Well, you know, what I'm obviously hoping is that the Supreme Court is not cowed into being uh, into changing an opinion that's already been drafted and, and, and decided upon. And obviously that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to force state. That's why it was leaked, which is obviously quite unusual. And that's why they're, they're, they're doing these bullying tactics. You know, I, I don't have a problem with people protesting, but doing it at their house or doing it at their church seems a li- little bit over the edge. And uh, certainly the idea that they're, they're going to force them to change their opinion is, is not the way this, this, this should operate. You know, it's funny because the Democrats spent most of the last year and a half or so shouting about an insurrection. I mean, what could be more an insurrection than a physical attempt to try to, you know, affect the outcome of a Supreme Court decision when America has done everything it can to insulate, uh, especially Supreme Court judges, against any kind of, uh, you know, effect from from politics? We want them to be insulated, and and it seems they are. And now the mob has said, no, we might we might actually threaten you and your family to get you to do differently. 
Yeah, I think what you're pointing out is this is all about results for them. They don't care about how they get there. And, you know, in one case, they're, they're screaming about January 6th, um, about a small number of people out of 300,000 uh, uh, going into the Capitol. And then in this case, somebody you have these groups that are organized that intimidate the Supreme Court, and they don't speak out against that at all. There's no problem with that. I'm talking to the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton. Let's talk about Title 42. Do you see any cracks in the Biden administration's plan uh, to say we're going to end the use of Title 42 to hold back that wave, that invasion wave of illegals? Because it seems even some of the Democrats are realizing just how bad this could get. Yeah, I think there's a lot of cracks. One is there's an injunction against it right now. Uh, And we've got our lawsuits. Several other states have their lawsuits. They're all very good lawsuits. And I think in the end, we have a strong case that they didn't follow the law in, in uh, revoking this. And I think it's going to hurt them politically because even Democrats, many Democrats understand and are speaking out against this because they know that's going to hurt their, their potential reelections. And it's also going to hurt the people in their districts. Well, maybe, maybe they've decided, like you suggested, that, uh, you know, for Marxists, the ends justify the means, even if they have to destroy America in, in order to, in their view, save it. Well, I agree with that. That is the Biden administration. Uh, that is their how they're operating on it under uh, on all of these things. They don't follow the federal law. They don't follow the Constitution. They don't care what the courts say. They are acting as if they can do whatever they want. And the results are all bad for America, whether it's the economy with inflation, whether it's gas prices, whether it's Afghanistan, whether I mean, it's the border. Take an issue. It's all bad for America. And their, their decision is, we're willing to trade the bad results, even if it costs lives, even if it costs jobs, even if it costs the ability for, 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 for people to, to progress. We're, we don't care. We're, we want the results we want, and we're going to get the, those results however, that, however we have to do it. Yeah, and for Homeland Security Secretary uh, Mayorkas to sit there in front of Congress and say, you know, we've got the border under control. No worries, folks. Move along. No story here. Uh, I just think is absolutely outrageous. Well, I mean, I don't even know how he can do that with a straight face. Uh, it's a factually, uh, factually false that he's got the border under control. It's the worst it's ever been in the history of our country and getting worse and I don't know how that guy sleeps at night when he stands in front of Congress and says it's under control. Well, frankly, I kind of hope they indict him uh, or at least refer something to the Biden DOJ recommending some kind of prosecution. That's Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Glad to be with you on a Monday night. I'll bet you've heard me talk about genericcbd.com. They're the ones who sell premium CBD for about half as much as the leading brands. Well, they got a brand new product and they know you're going to really like it. And to prove it, they want you to try it free of charge. That's right. two ninety five for shipping and handling, otherwise free of charge. It's their muscle joint and skin CBD cream. This penetrating cream, it melts right into your muscles and joints, your knees, your elbows, your lower back. You're not going to believe how fast it goes to work. And it doubles as one of the most effective skin moisturizers you're ever going to try. One drop on those rough, cracked, sun-baked hands, it turns back time right in front of your eyes. It's that good. 
But don't take my word for it. Try it yourself. Get your free sample at genericcbd.com. Once you try it, you're never going to want to be without it. Cover the $2.95 for shipping and handling and get a free sample headed your way. See what this amazing CBD cream can do for you. Get your free sample at genericcbd.com. That's genericcbd.com, your number one source for generic CBD. These products and statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. They're not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's the Radio Northwest Network serving Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And I'm glad to have you with me. If you want to join the conversation, you're certainly welcome. Naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. Now, you hear a lot about a housing shortage, and especially about a shortage of what the city or politicians, city, county, state authorities call affordable housing. Now, how you define what is affordable housing, almost everybody has a different idea. But I would start with the basic premise that the shortage of housing, including affordable housing, is largely being caused by the same governments that now promise to try to fix the problem. And the man who's written about this most recently is Micah Perry, Program Assistant for External Affairs at the Cascade Policy Institute, which is Oregon's free market public policy research organization. Micah, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Lars. I appreciate it. So I've made this argument before that the land use policies, the uh, system development charge policies, uh, all these other things have helped create this problem. You have actually looked at this from a data standpoint. Would you mind sharing some of that with my audience? Absolutely. So there's an economic consulting firm called Echo Northwest that just put out a report about a month or two ago. And they found, in short, that the city of Portland is rapidly losing its stock of single-family rental homes. So between 2017 and 2020, the city of Portland itself lost 14% of its single-family detached rental homes. So think uh, your typical family house in a neighborhood, 14% gone within three years. Uh, That's a loss of over 1,300 rental homes per year. And in that same span for comparison, we only built 450 family-sized units across the city, either apartments or housing. So uh, the rental options for families are just rapidly declining in the city of Portland and the region as a whole as well. Um, The rest of the region outside the Portland city limits lost 7% of its rental homes in that same time. So, uh, you know, obviously there's a problem statewide, but in Portland, we're losing it at, at twice the rate of the rest of the region. Uh, and so obviously something's at play that's causing this. You know, I suspect the same kind of thing is going on in Seattle. Let me spitball this and throw you my theory. Uh, these homes aren't blowing up or burning down. These homes are homes that were rented. And then landlords found out we have no rights. Uh, the state or the city or the county has said uh, your tenants don't have to pay. Uh, you can't screen tenants on the way in. You can't demand large uh, deposits to make sure that you have some kind of security. And if you want to kick out a tenant, a problem tenant, it's going to be like getting a you know an act of Congress to get rid of a, a problem tenant. So many of the landlords have simply said, fine, I'll sell the house to somebody who will probably treat it as their own single family home. So it takes it out of the rental market. Do you think I'm right in that analysis? You're spot on, Lars. You are exactly right. And the thing is, we're not, we've been in a hot housing market for quite a few years now. So if you feel that the city is demonizing you as a landlord, why wouldn't you sell and make uh, quite a, a big chunk of change by selling your home? There's really no incentive for you to keep your rental home at that point. And I think in Portland specifically, there are a couple of specific policies we can trace this decline to. Um, 
within that 2017 to the present timeline. So in early 2017, Portland passed an ordinance requiring landlords to pay up to $4,500 in a tenant's relocation costs if the landlord either decided not to renew a lease or raised rent more than 10%. And there's a few exceptions to this, but there's not many. And so in other words, if you, uh, you know, want to renovate your unit, for example, and end the lease for that reason, or maybe you just want to get out of the rental market, you actually have to pay to uh, move your tenant somewhere else, which uh, is just outrageous. Uh, and then in 2019, Portland also made changes to how you can screen applicants that made it a lot harder uh, for you to say who could and couldn't rent from you. So uh, this includes limits on income to rent ratios that landlords can use. Uh, so now you can't require a renter to make more than two times the rent amount if your unit isn't considered quote-unquote affordable by the city, which, again, is arbitrary. Um, but that puts you at risk as a landlord. Do you have those income limits and those ratios for a reason? You want to make sure your tenant can pay rent, and the city is stripping that ability uh, from you to 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 do that. So now, um, I, I think those two policies, in addition to a few others, have have driven this shortage. Micah, the other thing that's harder to put up, you know, hard numbers on. You can say we've lost as many rental homes, and as I said, the other big cities of the Northwest that have done these same kind of things. I suspect they're having the same problem in Seattle and and Eugene and other places. Does this also put pressure on the landlord to say, don't fix that house up? I mean, almost everybody who's lived in a rental house, I have has said, ah, I wish the landlord would paint this place or recarpet it. I wish they'd put in new windows. I wish, you know, there are lots of wishes that you would have as, as a tenant in a rental house. But the landlord has almost no incentive to do that because, as you said, uh, they're, they're limited in how much they can raise the rent. So why pour any money into something uh, where the, you know, the, the, la- the landlord position or the, you know, the rental housing position, if you're in that business, they've strapped you down six ways from Sunday, said you can't screen, you can't get rid of bad tenants, and you can't raise the rent more than a little bit. So if that's the case, why put any money in at all? So beyond the loss of rental housing, it may be that an awful lot of rentals are there. They're still there. They're just not being fixed up much by the landlord where the city or the county or the state has taken away most of the incentive to do any kind of improvements. That's a good point, Lars. I think I think that's definitely the case in a lot of these scenarios. And it reminds me of an old adage that uh, the road to hell is paved with good intention. And if you look at a lot, at a lot of these policies that are causing um, these outcomes, the intent of, of our policymakers is to help tenants and make rent more affordable, which Sure, who doesn't want our housing to be more affordable for everyone? But the tenants themselves are really the ones being directly hurt by these policies, whether it's because their unit's not going to be kept up as much by the landlord, they're not going to invest as much in it, or because the landlords are selling their rentals and then there's fewer rentals and the prices are going to go up and it'll be harder to find a place to live and to house your family. Um, so you might have to move elsewhere or just pay higher prices, period. So, um, you know, it's really important for policymakers when they are looking at implementing these um, various ordinances to to think about that, to think two steps ahead and say, OK, what will the, the second uh, secondary consequences be of this? Um, and, and to take that into consideration as well. Mike, at this point, though, is there any incentive for somebody to come to Portland and say, I'm going to build a bunch of houses and rent them to people at market rates? Is there any incentive to do that? I don't see one. I think especially if you throw in um, the fact that there's a lot of regulations around land use policy in Portland and in Oregon more broadly, um, the permitting process can be a huge hassle and drive up your costs through the roof to where it might not even be profitable anymore. 
So uh, there's really very little reason for someone to come in and and build housing, which I think is reflected in the amount that's being built right now. Which I think is is actually the underlying agenda of the cities and counties. They say, well, then we'll get into the business. The problem is, Micah, if you want to see a, a strange expression on somebody's face, say, have you ever thought about living in public housing? The minute you say that phrase, public housing, most people get a picture. And at least by my read, it's not a good picture. You'd say, do I want to live in public housing? Are you kidding? And then you imagine what kind of land, if you think your current landlord in the private sector is bad, can you imagine how bad it would be if it was actually operated by uh, and governed by the people who work in government? That's Micah Perry. You can read what he writes at the Cascade Policy Institute. Coming up, Kamala Harris is beyond excited about her ride on an electric bus. I've got a few thoughts on that, and then I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. So after two years of riots, multiple billions of dollars in damage to American cities, murder, dozens of them, and destruction over the issue of George Floyd and the issues connected to it uh, by groups like Antifa and BLM. Have Americans finally uh, gotten rid of their white guilt, or is is this just the beginning of something different? Mike Gonzalez is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the author of the book BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike, it's good to have you back. Thanks a lot for having me on, man. It's you got to tell your voice. You, well, it's good to hear your voice as well. But but tell me this: um, how much guilt do we have to you know get rid of? Uh, how do how, and how do we expiate our guilt when it comes to things like this? According to BLM, and and what should America do at this point, having been convinced to defund the cops, uh, deep deep prosecute the prosecutors' offices, um, empty out the prisons and the jails? How much, how much do we have to pay? What's the price? Well, first of all, we know that there is no collective guilt. There's no collective sin. Human beings uh, uh, commit sins, and we, we, uh, we have to, uh, you know, recant our sins, and we have to expiate our sins. The society does not collectively co- uh, commit uh, a sin. Now, uh, I, the, the issue here is, is that history has been bad we america you know america has done americans have done bad things towards african americans we know all this uh there was slavery there was jim crow and all of that really hung in the air uh and and it was manipulated uh especially in the in the last uh eight years or so of black lives matter but especially in the last two years to do something that would not help the life of a single person, especially our fellow black Americans. Uh, and that would be uh, get rid of the police, not, but not just the police, uh, get rid of the jails, get rid of the, 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 the prison system, and get rid of the courts, which is what Black Lives Matter wants. Yep. Uh, so what, what, what that has led has been to, to a rise, in, in, an incredible rise in the murder rate in the last two years, since the death of George Floyd. But ultimately, and this is the important thing here, Lars, and I'll finish this segment with this, is that what they want to do, what, what the, the founders of Black Lives Matter want to do, is, is the, the, demolish society. They want to dismantle the existing American society, the American way of life. And they say so, and they have manipulated the, 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 
the tragedy of George Floyd in order to get a lot of whites who felt guilty about the past into supporting this. And that has been a, a, a greater tragedy in itself. I mean, because, Mike, one of the things that strikes me is that when I used to go on ride-alongs with the cops, one of the most common calls, especially at night when I was doing ride-alongs, was domestic violence situations or domestic disputes in many of the cases. I didn't see as many people arrested as I just saw the police basically acting as babysitters for adults who couldn't get along and especially couldn't get along, you know, when when they were, uh, you know, when when they'd been drinking or using drugs. Um, And it was kind of pathetic. Because I thought, here we've got a police system that's designed to do this. And here's the comparison. What they've done is, is I think, what domestic abusers, the most practiced domestic abusers out there, find a way to make their victims feel guilty. That is, the wife who gets slugged in the face, gets a black eye or a broken cheekbone, and then says, well, it was really my fault because I, I burned dinner. You know, and, and they've been led to believe that they are the cause. I'm not willing to to go down that path. And yet that seems to be what BLM describes. You're all guilty for something that you shouldn't even be guilty for. And as a result, we have the right to abuse you, you know, endlessly, you know, with no end to it. With Barack Obama this week saying, you know, uh, it's been two years since George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd. His killing stays with us to this day. They're going to use this convicted criminal drug addict, a man who was in the middle of committing another crime when he was arrested, and the, you know, the actions that happened after his arrest as he was being taken into custody were wrong, and a court decided that. Fine, that's done. But he's being used as some kind of hero saying, you white people need to keep feeling guilty for everything till the end of time. Am I wrong about that? No, Obama, actually, Obama's tweet was worse because he tied the Uvalde tragedy to, Black, to, to George Floyd, and it was yep. a complete non-sequitur. Uh, look, nobody around today in the United States has ever owned a slave. Nobody around today uh, has ever been a slave. Uh, these are issues that happened generations ago. America has dealt with Jim Crow. America actually could should feel proud of itself for dealing with Jim Crow, for dealing with, with, with the way we dealt with, with, uh, with, the way we desegregated. We got rid of this great wrong that, that, that was segregation. Uh, you know, America was, was, was quite, when, 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 when Martin Luther King went to the mall and said, we have come to claim a promissory note, he was talking about our founding documents. Yep. He was talking to white America and saying, this is what you said we have a right to, and we're here to claim it. In America did that. America said, we're getting rid of, of, of separate but equal. We're getting rid of, the, of, of, of segregation. You work, we're not going to have racial, race-conscious policies forever, uh, again. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, we should celebrate what that was a great step forward for all of us, Right. Yeah. Uh, instead, what what the founders of BLM want to do is pretend that we're an oppressive society, uh, that, we, that there's systemic racism, which means then that the logical conclusion is that you have to get rid of the system. And the system is what pro- what produced getting rid of segregation. The system is, is what gave us the Civil Rights Act 
look, the reason I wrote my book, BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution, is because nobody in the media talks about who these founders are, Lars. And that's the main thing. These founders, they, they said they were trained Marxists, and they're not, they're not saying an untruth. They were trained Marxists. But they were trained by communist theoreticians, people deeply steeped into cultural Marxism, into changing over, into taking over society, into indoctrinating people. And that's what we have seen happen for the last two years. Uh, and I'm, I'm very hopeful, as, as I wrote in that, that article that you're, that you're quoting, I am very hopeful that Americans have actually woken up to this, woken up so. to this use of, of, of collective white guilt and, and will not allow the American system to be dismantled. Well, and Mike, that, that part of King's speech, it's part of the dream speech, but everybody, all the media runs the dream part of it because that's the one everybody's heard. My favorite part is the reference you made where he talked about it being a contract with Americans. He didn't say it was a contract with black Americans or brown Americans. It was a contract with all Americans. And to me, when I, when I heard that, because I, you know, I was a little kid when he said it, but when I saw the soundbite, I thought this is the one they ought to be playing, that there's a contract there. And it doesn't matter what skin color you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter where you go to church. Uh, the, the contract applies to all of us. And he wanted it enforced for black Americans in particular. But the contract applies equally to every single one of us. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. That's Mike Gonzalez from the Heritage Foundation. As he said, his new book is called BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. And by the way, if some of you said these people are Marxists, the ones who ripped off the millions of dollars so they could buy fancy houses in largely white gated communities. Yeah, that's the kind of Marxist that Americans have ended up. With. We'll get to your calls next at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show on this Wednesday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show or on our website. Much safer place to go. No censorship there at LarsLarson.com. Since taking office, Joe Biden has done his best to make our southern border just as weak as he possibly can. And is that opening up the doors to terrorists and uh, violent criminals to come in. Chris Shemelinsky joins us now, who's the Numbers USA Director of Policy and Activism. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. What do we know most recently about real-life examples of terrorists, or suspected terrorists, I guess you have to call them, uh, coming into our country because of Joe Biden's new border policy? Yeah, well, we, you know, we just had about a week or two ago, uh, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas testified before both the House and the Senate and said, yeah, we've had at least 42 known terrorists cross the southern border illegally. Uh, and then they got released into the United States. Um, and he, he said that they know where they are. But again, you know, if, the, if they knew that they were admitting them and they were crossing the border illegally and releasing them, why, why release them if they're known terrorists? Uh, so, so whether or not they actually have tabs on them, uh, who knows? Well, and as, as I understand them, one of them, and I mentioned uh, this person the other night, is Nardo Garcia Armando, or Armando um, was flagged 
released by the border agents, and then they realized a few days later, no, he's on the terrorist list, and they began looking for him, given a GPS monitoring device as an alternative to detention, but still allowed to, I guess, circulate in the population. Why aren't these, is there any legal authority to take somebody who is a suspected terrorist and say, you're not welcome to be here at all, we're sending you back? Well, I mean, for the most part, anybody who crosses the border illegally should be should be sent back, um, you know, or if they present themselves at 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 a at a, at a port of entry um, and, and go through customs, you know, the, the United States has has the right to send back anybody that it doesn't want to admit into the country, whether they have property proper documentation or not. Um, but it's it's all under the discretion of the executive branch, and and we have an administration right now who. Who has an open door policy? Anybody who shows up, regardless of how you got here, regardless of where you show up, uh, whether it's at a legal port of entry or, or uh, you know, in one of the many unprotected areas along the southwestern border, they're going to let you in. Uh, and you know, most of it, if you say the magic words, claiming asylum, uh, that usually gets you a free ticket into the United States for at least a few years with a work permit. Well, Chris, let me ask you this. I mean, most of these people who make these decisions, whether it's Joe Biden or his Democrat friends on Capitol Hill, they realize the political, I mean, and they seem to care a lot more about the political consequences of what they do. Um, And I just wonder, are they just all rolling the dice saying, well, if we start letting in dozens or hundreds of terrorists into America, it's only a matter of time before you, you know, strike the, you know, you win the negative lottery. I, I, I call it the negative lottery. It's when you, you have this very rare chance of something happening that's really, really bad. Uh, but it's like, you know, the lottery is usually winning something that's really, really good. And so they, they must realize at some point, one of these jokers is going to murder people or commit an act of terrorism. And when we find out what well, you had this person and you identified this person, because that's going to come out in court fairly quickly. Why did you let them stay is going to be the natural question to ask, isn't it? Exactly. And, and the whole reason why uh, Immigration, Border Patrol, Customs and Border Protection, why they're all under the Department of Homeland Security. Remember, DHS wasn't an agency prior to 9-11. They created DHS and they shifted immigration and, and enforcement out of the Department of Justice and into the Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security, because there were foreigners in, in the country who, who committed the horrific acts on 9-11. And, and that was one of the responses was, you know what, actually immigration is on the front lines of, of defending our national security. It should be in DHS, not not the Department of Justice. So, you know, one would think that they take this this seriously, and I think they do. I think they're, you know, very afraid of, of a terrorist attack. But again, the, the 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 current philosophy of the of the administration, at least the ones that are running the immigration policy, is, you know what? Yeah, okay. So they're a suspected known terrorist. We're still going to let them in because. You know, we just completely oppose not allowing anybody into the country. We're just going to keep track of them. But God forbid if they lose one of them, uh, it, it only takes one to create mass destruction here in the U.S. So we'll see. Hopefully uh, that doesn't happen. Chris, the reason I ask that is because, I mean, 
I can almost see the gears working. You know, when I'm talking to a member of Congress, a senator or a congressman, when you ask them a question, they're, they're careful about just about every word they say because they realize you say the wrong thing at the wrong time or in the wrong context, right. and you're out. You're, you're done. And, right. and that probably is as it should be. But, but when they do things like this and they realize our president is doing this, and if, let's say, in September or October of this year, we have a terrorist attack, and it comes out, this is one of the people that Joe Biden let in. He, he isn't going to be able to say, well, I let in five million others who didn't commit a terrorist act. They're going to say, <laughs> you let this person in. You knew about this person. You let him stay. That's Chris Shemelinsky, Numbers USA Director of Policy and Activism. This is the Lars Larson Show. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and check us out on Truth Social at Lars Larson. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that... Whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want you to consider this because we've talked a bit about Dianne Feinstein, who's nearing 90 years of age. And the question is, when you've got members of Congress who are two and even three times the age of their staff, and even the staff, even a very loyal staff starts to question, is Senator Dianne Feinstein getting just a little bit long in the tooth to still be making decisions like a U.S. senator would make? I thought we'd talk with Phil Blumel, who's president of U.S. Term Limits. Phil, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I guess I've always told people that the voters are my number one term limit and that I would hope that people who are in public office, like Dianne Feinstein, would know when it's time to hang it up. And yet in this case, apparently she doesn't because she's shown all the indications that she plans to seek another term. And that that seems crazy to me at her age. And especially when we hear reports that there are members of her own party and perhaps her own staff who are concerned that she's not all there all the time. Oh, right. I mean, all these stories are coming out right now about the problems she's having, uh, repeating questions and um, asking people to, to reintroduce themselves multiple times in a in a conversation, and she is apparently unaware that this is occurring. Um, she's being, the hook is trying to pull her off stage, and she's saying, wait a minute, no, no, there's nothing wrong. Um, but, of course, sadly, we all know that there is, and it's a, it's a problem not just for her, although it certainly is a tragedy for her, but also for the country, and something has, needs to be done about it. Well, and what I don't understand about this is that I tell people, don't make the mistake of focusing too much on the money. Because I don't think money's a concern for her. I recall that last year when there was a fire near Tahoe, uh, there, there was there was word that her house was endangered. And I, I don't think I remember before hearing that her house was a $41 million house. But she's not going to have a tough time paying the rent or, or making ends meet. It's not like she's hanging on to her Senate seat because she'll be lacking for health care or lacking for a, a paycheck of some kind. She's fabulously wealthy right now. So what do you suppose is keeping a person like her in an office like that? It's got to be ego, isn't it? Oh, I'm sure ego is a huge part of it, power. Um, also, in her case, you know, with her declining um, capacity, uh, she might not fully be grappling with these issues either. Um, 
But certainly what makes people, politicians, cling to power is just that, power. And they love having that power, but I wonder just how powerful somebody is who's 88, can't remember names, things like that. Uh, do, you, do you really hang on to some power, or do people just kind of work around you because they understand, well, she's here, the voters chose her, and would the voters choose to put her back for another term? That, To me, that's always been a superior answer than hard and fast term limits, although I'm certainly willing to entertain it. The thing, I, I think you and I have talked about this before. I've always told people, they say, mm-hmm. what do you think about term limits? And I say, I'm concerned that the bureaucracy already has a gigantic amount of the power that's in Washington, D.C., held in the hands of unelected people whose names and faces mm-hmm. we don't even know. And if you limit the, the terms of members of Congress, uh, even relatively broad limits, you may just put more hands in the, power, in the hands of the bureaucracy, and that's not going to be good for citizens either. So is there a way to solve this problem and, and avoid this kind of situation through actual term limits? And do they have to be done state by state, or should we put them in the U.S. Constitution? Okay. Well, uh, you asked, uh, asked several questions there. First of all, yes, I definitely believe that term limits are an answer to this. And let me start there, um, because when you look at the states that have term limits versus the states that don't, um, the states that have term limits, the average age of the legislators are very close to the average age of an adult in the United States. In fact, it's slightly lower, but it's right about there. The states that do not have term limits, like the Congress, you see a much older group representing those states. And so there's a certain it does bring the general age down in the legislature by having term limits. And remember, this isn't just a problem for Diane Feinstein. This is a we're basically being governed by a gerontocracy today where the 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 folks that run, say, the the U.S. Congress are far older than the average adult. In fact, they're uh, they're, you know, not truthfully, not that far from the grave. Yeah, and I guess you wonder whether how well connected to what the average person in America wants, or even just their constituents. In her case, she represents all the people in the state of California as one of two U.S. senators. But how connected can you be when most of the members of Congress, especially the older ones, tend to be very, very wealthy? I mean, and so that disconnects you from from the concerns of average people. Uh, you know, she may worry about the cost of jet fuel for her private jet going up, but but the average person's right. worried about how to fill their gas tank. So there's age that disconnects you from how how's the average person affected by this. And then you've got wealth that disconnects them too, which means as far as I'm concerned, you can't be a very good representative if you can't really understand the problems that your constituents are faced with. Oh, that's absolutely right. You can't. And one of the main benefits of tournaments is that they provide rotation in office and you have new ideas constantly, people coming from the private sector into politics and filtering out again. And you see there's a much larger, much greater connection between the electorate and the people who are elected. And this is a key point, because you mentioned earlier about how, well, if people want to elect older uh, legislators, then, you know, why not? That's probably the best limit. But it's not the best limit, because the truth is that Incumbents have so much power over the process that their reelection is generally automatic, particularly when you're a senior member. And so what happens is, is that over 90 percent of incumbents are returned to office, many unopposed and most of them underopposed, meaning, sure, there's an election held, but there's usually a gadfly, a paper candidate, 
somebody completely underfunded relative to the incumbent. And so the incumbent just rolls back in. And in a seniority system, where is all the power concentrated? It's in the older members of the group. And that's what we see, where all of the members of the leadership in the U.S. House are about 90 years old. And they're reelected and reelected and reelected because they've got the money. In the U.S. House, a, a candidate running for election that is, uh, has better funding wins over 90% of the time, just yep. like incumbents win over 90% of the time. And the reason why is because they're basically the same people. Yeah, they're the same people, and they hang on to the power, and they hang on to it well past mm-hmm. their prime. I wish we could make it, you know, just as we kind of expect presidents to release their tax forms, you know, that's an expectation, not a law or a rule. Uh, if we made mm-hmm. it an expectation that people would actually say, I will agree to stay for only so many terms, and even when I'm tempted to stay longer, I'll stick to that promise. But I've also seen members of Congress who've made that promise. Where's the website for people to learn more about U.S. term limits? It's uh, termlimits.com. Very good. Easy enough. Termlimits.com. That's Phil Blumel, who's the president of U.S. Term Limits. Glad to get your emails, too. Talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, at Show, And by all means, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. Now, I think this actually relates to what I wanted to talk to Senator Mike Padden about, a Republican from the Spokane Valley. Uh, Senator, welcome to the program. I just had a listener let me know that Portland International Airport, I know not the state you represent, Uh, But I would imagine Seattle International is probably doing the same. God forbid if Spokane International does it. But the airport is literally on its uh, site or on its Twitter account saying, we welcome all those who are coming to the state to fly into the airport seeking safe abortion care. Can you believe that we've got a government agency? I mean, that's who runs the, the airports is government agencies, usually port agencies, saying, welcome here for safe abortion care. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how they define safe care when it ends in the death of, of a human life, but there it is. Senator, welcome back. Well, always good to be with you, Lars. And yeah, absolutely. That's uh, outrageous. And uh, the equation equating abortion care as a positive uh, when, like you say, it destroys an innocent human life. You know, we're, we're supposed to be protecting the defenseless, and uh, that's that's going the wrong way. So we have the Supreme Court, which finally recognized that when the court 49 years ago said, we found in the pages of the Constitution a right to abortion, along with a right to privacy, either, even though neither one exists. Uh, so the court does the right thing and fixes it, its mistake of almost half a century ago. And now we've got people like Jay Inslee saying uh, that even though uh, abortion is uber available in both Oregon and Washington, that Inslee says, we're going to do everything we can to facilitate more abortions in the state of Washington. What should residents of the Evergreen State make of that? Well, I think it's uh, somewhat ghoulish. Is That's what he would be uh, promoting. Uh, I think we've got to continue to work in Oregon and Washington uh, to convince people uh, about the humanity of the unborn child. And, and we know uh, that uh, 
it's a it's a human being from the moment of conception. We we know that uh, the doctors are doing surgery in the womb nowadays, and they provide anesthesia because the unborn child feels pain. So you know we may have to start and and do some bills such as the elimination of sex selection abortions, the elimination of abortions for Down syndrome, the elimination of late-term abortions. These are things that initially I think the citizens of our state would uh, would support. But we, we've got to continue to speak up for life and, and work on a one-on-one basis to convince our friends and neighbors and people we come in contact with. Senator Patton, uh, Jay Inslee, the governor, has actually said he wants to enshrine what he calls abortion rights, so the right to an abortion in the state constitution. Is that a non-starter, or, or do, it, it, does there exist actually the realistic possibility that Olympia could vote and say we're going to put abortion rights in the constitution of the state? I, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible. I don't think it would happen, certainly not now, and hopefully it'd be less likely after the November elections, it would take a two-thirds vote of both the House and Senate, and then it would have to be approved by the people of, of the state of Washington. And uh, they don't want abortion at any time for any reason. We've already passed some of the most extreme abortion legislation in the country last session, House Bill 1851, which would allow somebody like Kermit Gosnell, who's serving a life sentence for criminal negligence in the death of women and children, somebody like him could not be prosecuted in this state under 1851, which the governor has signed and takes effect here in a few days. And in fact, uh, if anybody isn't familiar with Kermit Gosnell, he literally ranks as America's biggest serial killer. The number of deaths, the the number of of babies killed and actually born babies killed, uh, not just aborted, uh, eclipses any of the other serial killers you've ever heard of, including Ted Bundy. Yeah, absolutely right, Lars. That's an excellent point. Do you think that that there is, okay, let me go the other way. If there's no chance of an abortion amendment to the state constitution, does does something reasonable, like the Down syndrome question has always bothered me because I'll ask people. I said, do you know what happens to most Down syndrome babies in America? And they say, oh, I don't know, they're cared for. And I said, no, they're killed in the womb. And they said, no, that can't be true. I've had people in the news business say, no, that's not true. And I said, it's 90% plus by the best estimates that they're simply killed before they're ever born. I said, that's why you don't hear about Down syndrome being as, as, as many people with Down syndrome today, because they're simply exterminated before they're born. Iceland brags about it. Is there any possibility we can educate people and get the state to say at least you can't yell a baby just because the baby isn't, isn't perfect? I think so. And we've got great examples. The congresswoman here in our district, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, has a Down syndrome child, Cole, and I've met with him. I mean, and, and uh, Lars, have been to the Special Olympics, and, you know, uh, you give a talk there, you get a, the most enthusiastic reception I think I've ever gotten anywhere. I think Down syndrome individuals bring such a joy and, and positive uh, aspect to life. Uh, and I think what people know that, and if they see that, uh, I, I think this is a, is something that could be passed eventually. Uh, right now, uh, the Democrats are lockstep against any pro-life legislation, therefore abortion for any reason at, at any time and subsidized and everything else. But uh, there is a chance that the majorities will change 
in, in Washington and maybe Oregon, too. I don't know. Uh, come November, if that were to happen, I think we'd have a chance to pass this. We'd have to submit it as a referendum to the people because Inslee would uh, veto it. And he still got a couple years left on his term. So uh, but I think there is a possibility and we got to give uh, a people hope. So in addition to, you know, convincing people one on one and telling them the, about the humanity, of the unborn child, uh, I think we've got to get involved and support pro-life candidates that are running for the legislature. You know, Senator, I've challenged some of my friends in the news business who are still reporters, and I've said, why don't you do some stories on what we do to Down syndrome babies that are not yet born? And they say, well, you know, I said, there, there have to have been some, and, and, and uh, that's what their response is. And I say, no, try and find in your files a single story about a family that says, yeah, uh, mom was pregnant, but the baby had Down, so we just killed the baby and started over. I said, you're not going to find a single story in any news pages that I've ever seen outside of the pro-life websites that are out there. A conventional uh, news shop, a TV, radio, newspaper, they never, ever, ever do a story like that because it runs counter to what, unfortunately, most reporters swing to the left and they believe in abortion. And they're not about to do a story on how they just kill all the Down syndrome kids. Senator Mike Padden representing the Spokane Valley. Senator Padden, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. When we come back, I got to talk about the sergeant at arms who just passed away. Former Senate sergeant at arms who raised questions about paid professional agitators on Capitol Hill on January 6th. And I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first at 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Should a religious school be forced to support groups within that school that are actually working in uh, contravention to the religious beliefs of a private religious school? I thought we'd talk about this issue, and it's an interesting one, uh, with Rabbi Yaakov Menken, who's managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, the largest rabbinic public policy organization in America. Rabbi Yaakov, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. Would you mind telling me what's, and my audience, what's going on at Yeshiva University in New York City? Well, Yeshiva University just got a judgment against them, of course, from a particular judge in the New York State system that said, uh, responding to a lawsuit from a group that wished to form as an officially recognized student group at Yeshiva University as an LGBTQ club. Now, of course, Yeshiva University, being a Jewish rabbinic school, uh, or, or associated with rabbinic school, is obviously of the Jewish religious variety. But nonetheless, back in 1970, They charted themselves as a secular school in order to receive certain funding the government will only give to schools it deems secular, which, if you're watching, you know, just a a week ago, or a few days ago, actually, the Supreme Court declared potentially unconstitutional. So I don't think, in, in, in Yeshiva University's defense, I don't think that they even imagined in 1970 what being secular would entail in 2022. I don't think they could possibly have foreseen that. But the dean of the rabbinic school associated with it 
said with some prescience in 1970 that this is a really bad idea. He did. So he, he anticipated uh, that, that this, this might be the result, that when you start taking money from the government, you promise we're going to be a secular school, that, that you could end up with problems. I, the thing I don't understand is why would somebody whose life, you know, the way they conduct their life is not in accord with the religious beliefs of a, uh, of a school, why would they want to be a student or a teacher or in any other way associated with the school if the school doesn't hew to the same values they do? I, I've never understood that. Yeah, my son did not think about applying to Baylor University. You've got a point. <laughs> well, and, I, you know, Rabbi, there was a case, I don't know, about a decade ago, there was a, a lesbian couple. Fine, okay, it's their life. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not running their life. I don't want the government to run their life either. They wanted to put their kids in a Catholic school. And then they complained that the Catholic school said, we don't approve of your, your lifestyle. You're, you know, you're, you're a couple. You're a lesbian couple. And I wondered, well, if you're a lesbian couple and you understand the Catholic Church is, you know, you love all the sinners, but, but you don't love the sin, and you can say, we disapprove of your lifestyle. You knew that when you walked in the door. Why did you come to a place that you knew was somewhat antithetical to the way you conduct your life? Why not go to any other school that you could go to? And, and of course, they brought a lawsuit demanding that the religious school change its practices rather than simply self-select and go to a different school. There are really only two options here for the students at Yeshiva University who did this. One is that Throughout high school, in the middle of pride parades and all the celebration of this lifestyle that's going on right now, they had absolutely no clue that they were gay as they went through puberty and adolescence and checking out everybody and et cetera, et cetera, which means that it's not at all the innate character trait, the element of a person's identity that they claim it to be, that that's simply not the case. It's a choice, it's a desire, it's something that arises in people, but it's not an identity characteristic, which completely contradicts the entire message. Okay, that's possibility number one. Possibility number two is that they went to Yeshiva University with an agenda to force a Yeshiva University to say there should be no refuge from this nonsense. There cannot be any place in America outside, perhaps, a house of worship where you're allowed to say, we don't believe in in your lifestyle. You have to have it, even at Yeshiva University. So either they say it's not an innate characteristic at all, or they went there to celebrate their agenda and with an axe to grind. And, by the way, the fact that the judge is herself a member of the LGBTQ Law Council of New York and got a coveted, highly approved rating, and rare highly approved rating, from LGBTQ New York vote, uh, that kind of tells you something. Well, and, and Rabbi, it seems to invite kind of, what I think what the lawyers call a, a moral hazard. You've now created an opportunity, and, and I would compare it to this, although it's not in the religious lane. Uh, if I went to a bunch of my conservative friends and said, let's get a few million of us, let's join the Sierra Club and turn it into the biggest advo- ag- advocacy group for drilling for oil in America. 
And they'd say, well, why would you go to a group that doesn't believe in drilling for oil and want to change them? You say, because then I'll basically wipe them out as what they are, what the Sierra Club, you know, stands for. Uh, I'm not a member of the Sierra Club, obviously. Um, but why would I want to do that? So that I can destroy other institutions that are part of people's beliefs, if not closely held religious beliefs, then at least philosophical beliefs, and say, we're going to have these marauding bands of people running around saying, let's get into an organization and we'll change the nature of the organization where we're all done, we can walk away and leave the wreckage behind us. That's what it seems like to me. It invites that kind of behavior, doesn't it? It is a mob mentality. It is dominating the left. It is this this concept. I mean, of course, as a Jewish person who cares about Israel, you kind of reminded me of this so-called idea of a Palestinian right of return, which is that any Arab whose great-great-great-grandparents ever stepped foot in British Mandatory Palestine has a right to live in Israel, which, of course, means we demographically overwhelm the Jews, and presto, we don't have a Jewish state anymore. We have no opportunity for anybody else who's different. Well, that's exactly what they're trying to do to the school here, and that's what you see the left doing in America and many other areas. What you just described regarding Sierra Club, I don't think that's such a theoretical. We've seen organizations taken over by woke radicals that didn't start off that way, who have living donors who say, why did I ever give this organization a penny when when this is what they're supporting now? I've noticed that, too, because, Rabbi, I, I have some friends whose families have given a lot of money to, to foundations and such, and they say, why is this foundation so different? You know, in other words, if the people who founded it and gave the money to start it and the people who continue to support it, why is it so liberal and left? And you say, because they, you know, what happens is they, the other side, comes in, takes over, and says, we don't like the, the philosophy of this organization, so we're going to change it. Well, why not just start your own organization? They say, well, we already have LGBT organizations. We want to take over all the other ones. And I've got, I've got gay friends who say they hate what this, this whole LGBT crowd is doing. They, they resent the idea just because you're gay, you say, well, these people represent you. No, they don't. And they behave in ways that actually bring shame and disrepute on the people who just want to be gay Americans. Who cares, right? There are people who just want to do their private business in their private time and really would rather not. And by the way, there's a whole lot of gay Americans who object specifically to the trans agenda. Yeah. Because yep. a lot of the trans, specifically trans men to women, actually despise real natural women. They call them turfs if they dare to disagree. Unbelievable. That's Rabbi Yaakov Menken. He's the managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values. Rabbi, it's always good to have you on the program. We'll be back in just a moment. I'll get to your calls. And if you're a naysayer, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. Well, Social Security and Medicare that working adults have been paying into their entire careers are supposed to make sure that their health care needs are covered when they get older and that there's a a sort of a safety net but are those government safety nets denying health care to the elderly and doing it deliberately now that would talk to max richmond who's the ceo for the national committee to preserve social security and medicare max good to have you back on the program well thanks for having me lars what would bring these bureaucracies to deliberately deny health care to the people who've actually paid into the systems and they're entitled to it 
Well, I think I think you might be shocked that it's it's down comes down to money and profit. No kidding, right? <laughs> yeah. That that's exactly what it is. As as you know, uh, in in your state of Oregon, there are about eight hundred eighty thousand Medicare beneficiaries. About over four hundred thousand of them are in Medicare Advantage plans, and a lot of people are happy with those plans. But we have recently received a Inspector General's report. Inspector General from the Department of Health and Human Services yeah. has determined something we've been uh, sounding the alarm about for a long time: that the many of these Medicare Advantage plans, not just in Oregon but around the country are delaying or denying uh, beneficiaries access to services, even though those requests meet both Medicare coverage guidelines and Medicare Advantage organizations' billing rules. Why are they doing that? It's very simple. The way that this system, Medicare Advantage, works is those insurance companies uh, get paid a certain amount of money per beneficiary. The less money they spend, the more profit they have, the more times you can see uh, sports and uh, entertainment celebrities on television pitching uh, these Medicare Advantage programs like crazy. I'm sure that's true out there as it is out here in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm sure it is, but I'm wondering, do they have the, is it legal for them to do what they're doing if somebody comes to them with a legitimate claim and says, I want treatment for this? It's covered under my coverage. Legally, how do they get away with saying we're simply not going to supply it? They're they're simply denying uh, uh, payment. And what's happened is, in a lot of these cases, we found that uh, these once the inspector general has uh, brought this to the attention, they uh, reverse some of these denials. They're they're doing they're doing whatever they can, in my opinion, to get away with whatever is possible. And they've been pretty successful uh, with it so far. You know, I'm sure you've seen the ads for Medicare Advantage programs. A lot of people, a lot of people like them. Uh, but one of the things that has troubled us, and we're committed to protecting both Social Security and Medicare, is that the information that is uh, provided to the public is very limited, very slanted, very one-sided. In the past, the Medicare program has been uh, really promoting Medicare Advantage programs without explaining to individuals that may be considering a Medicare Advantage plan when they become eligible for Medicare that you may have restrictive physician networks if you join. If you get into a Medicare Advantage plan and you find that you're not happy with it, you want to go back to traditional Medicare, it's not that simple. You've got to wait until the open enrollment period. And one very important thing You know, a lot of Medicare beneficiaries purchase what's called a Medigap policy, a supplemental policy to cover what Medicare doesn't cover. It may be that if you want to switch back into traditional Medicare, you will find it very difficult, possibly impossible, uh, to buy a a Medigap plan. So you're really stuck. No, hold on. Stop for a second, Max. Why... What's built into the system that makes it difficult for you to switch back? You can only do it during the open enrollment right. period. It's only allowed one, uh, that one time, and it's usually in the fall. And what is not known, as I said, it's very important since so many Medicare beneficiaries rely on the, uh, buying a supplement, a Medigap policy, 
when you switch over to go back, if that's what you choose to do, you may not be able to buy a Medigap plan or be able to uh, buy a Medigap plan that is affordable. Those are those are the restrictions. And and what I'm saying, what I'm saying, what I'm telling you, what I'm telling anyone who's willing to listen, is the government should let people know that. Uh, there's another side to this, not just what uh, a sports figure who's on on television nonstop is telling you about all these benefits that you're going to get. You need to know that these plans may have restrictive phys- uh, physician networks. There may be changes, as we just talked about, in going back to traditional Medicare that may be impediments. And let people decide. Let people know the full picture, the pluses and the minuses, and make an informed decision. That hasn't happened uh, in the in the past, well, I, and we need, got, that needs to change. I've got a better idea, or maybe it's a better idea, Max. You can tell me. I understand well, why they have good ideas. So go ahead. Well, I understand why they have open enrollment periods because administratively it makes it easier. I mean, even when you work for a private company, they'll say once a year you get a chance to switch around. They don't want you switching. You know, like every six months you change your mind. And there are people like that. But if you were to say to people, listen, we want you to settle on a plan and stick with it. And we prefer that you change at the open enrollment period. However, we understand that sometimes you're going to find this just doesn't work for me. That's Max Richmond, who's CEO for the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Max, thank you very much for the time. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.